you you talking about launching into space is, is exactly what happens in the first one we're going to talk about as well. Oh, there you uh, go. Perfect yeah, segue exactly. from stuff that no one's going to hear into what we're talking about now. <laughs> launching into space. Yeah, this is Kino Kingdom. I think it's 33. I should never say that. I'm always wrong when I go back. It to is it. 33, actually, because I started 33. numbering my notes. So, yeah. Oh, that's probably pretty good then. I bet you've got, whether you've seen everything on like Now TV or Amazon Prime or Netflix as well, haven't you? Like a bloody SWAT. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. After 33 episodes. <laughs> Trying to help people who listen. Um, <laughs> I yeah I've like I know we've had a bit of a break but it is going to be much more regular from now on and it's mostly my fault um uh yeah and I've got a lot of films but I'm just going to go through as many as we can um have you got a theme to yours mine are very mine's very much a blunderbuss approach again I've got no theme uh no not really uh no really not at all actually there's a few sort of horrors on there I guess so it's a bit of that but it's a good mix well, I've I say good mix. <laughs> good mix of bad films. <laughs> um, well, before we, I know we've got a look at a power on, so I'll quickly get the sponsorship out of the way if that's cool. It's just a nice easy one today. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry. Got to, keep, got to keep the money rolling in, don't we? So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want to retire at forty, and I'm fifty-two, <laughs> so I really, really need to ramp things up. So here we go. Uh, this week we're sponsored by what is it? A table. A chair, a door, a fist. Do you find yourself finding forgetting the names of everyday items? Here at What Is It, a simple phone call and verbal description can allow one of our highly trained operators to let you know what you're looking at. From cupboards to gardens and even quarries, we at What Is It are here to help. What is it? We'll let you know. And they've they've said in the file they've sent they've said jingle attached. But when I opened up the attachment, it was just words. It was just a word document. So I'm just gonna kind of sing the jingle as I imagine it goes. I, I don't know how it goes. Um, what okay. are you looking at? You don't know. Give us a ring and we will tell you though. Please get permission from the bill payer first, cause this is a premium phone line. Yeah, I think that's. I'd be surprised if they wouldn't hire you to do the jingle. To be honest, yeah, I think I, I think that's fine. If anything, like you say, it'll be better than whatever tat they've got. Um, yeah, that's what they call me. Not that we're making any judgments about our sponsors. No, not at all. In fact, I'll cut that out. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, we've both got a load to go through. So do you want to go first? Yeah, we're just going to jump straight into this. This is uh, well, I will proceed. I'll start with the sequel. Why not? <laughs> Jaws mm. 2. Bloody hell. Jaws 2. <clears throat> it made in 1978. This is on Rakuten. So this is Apparently one of the ones. Are you still with Rakuten? I um well I get free I get free uh rentals, but only up to a certain price. So I can't get anything any of the recent releases. So I have to go trawl through the old older films on there that no one wants to watch and just watch <laughs> one of them. Of course, I do want to watch them. So anyway, this was made in 1978 by uh, uh, Ginot Svark, who went on to do Santa Claus the movie, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so we kind of, it's it's Jaws 2. We've seen it all before. Um, and so the film sort of just is to increase the action and reduce the tension and the character building, really. Uh, there are a lot of terrible films from the 1970s, but 
there is nothing greater than a great 70s film. This is not one of them, but uh, there's something about films around the time I was born. Like there's this sort of blend of familiarity, but it of being just outside of memory, if you see what I mean. And they, they so I find them really atmospheric. I, I, I love watching them anyway, no matter how bad they are. And to be fair, Jaws 2 is the best of the Jaws sequels, but that's not really saying much. Um, how so many sequels were there? Well, there was there was three in the end. They weren't nineteen as um, Back to the Future Two predicted, but um, yeah. So it yeah it got to number four, and then they, everyone just retired on the money. I think um, so. Yeah, it's pretty much the same narrative as the original, um, just with all the scenes juggled about really. So if you're up for more of the same as the first film, but slightly shoddier, then knock yourself out. So there, there's a bunch of possible shark attacks in amity bay spoiler alert they are shark attacks um chief brody um uh, obviously played by roy shudder uh he is convinced that they're shark attacks he's got no expert backup this time but he's got his fair share of experience i suppose um his kids sneak out and go sailing with a bunch of horny teens and he ends up having to go out into the ocean to rescue them. Um, and obviously when they're, when they're out there, they're getting picked off by the shark. Um, it, it's a film which is severely lacking Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw, it has to be said. Um, apparently, Richard Dreyfus' character is in the Antarctic. Um, so, Scheider is great, obviously, but he really needs someone to bounce off except his wife. Um so it, it's kind of best when it focuses on Chief Brody's trauma and paranoia. And there's a really good scene where he's watching the beach and he has to, he sounds the alarm because he sees a shadow in the water, but it turns out just to be a school of fish. Um, and there's a good scene where he gets really awkwardly drunk after getting fired. So they're all good. Um, and it is quite handsomely shot and it's sort of atmospheric. Um, and Clearly, it's a crafted film. It's thoughtfully crafted. And and John Williams' music has been updated. Um, they didn't just take it from the original and just copy and paste it into this. So that's good. Um, but it doesn't really hang together as a story. Like, the whole concept of Chief Brody venturing alone into the ocean is ridiculous because... The whole point of the first film is he was terrified of the water, and and after his experience with the shark, he's clearly got even more reason to be terrified now. I mean, I get that it's his son now. Has he just got like Mm. one of those like um, like giraffe child's rubber rings on? Like he cannot wait to get get out there paddling. (laughs) Yeah, he's got one of them on, but he's just in the bath. He's that scared. Um, So, um, I mean, I get that he's going out there to get his son, but. The whole point of his character was, A, that he was terrified of the water, but also that he is a conscientious professional. So none of it really rings true. Also, in the original, the the, the great thing about it was that it was almost a film of two halves or three thirds, I suppose. The, the, the final third was watching the interplay and the shifting dynamics between the three, those three men on the boat, which was great but in this it's just a bunch of interchangeable teens screaming and shouting really so it's 
it's really just a teen slasher with a shark. It's very one note. The mechanical effects this time are actually worse than the original, by the way, because because there's so much more visibility of the shark. You just see a lot more of it, and it looks bad a lot of the time. So overall, it's not a very good film, but it, it is the best of the sequels. But I think that says more about Jaws 3D and Jaws the Revenge than it does about this, to be honest. And, and obviously the original Jaws is is often credited with creating the summer movie, if you like, in 1975. But it goes to show that it cannot be credited with creating the summer franchise because on that count, it pretty much failed. It was diminishing return, rapidly diminishing returns with this franchise. I've never, I've only seen Jaws. I've never bothered with the sequels. It it doesn't, no. a film about a shark, doesn't, it doesn't feel like it needs to be explored any further. So, uh, I, I've, yeah. I've never bothered watching, and I've only ever heard bad things. And for you to give it such a sort of lower tier, middling review, and then say it's the best of the sequels, doesn't bode well. Yeah, and I suppose the reason why I was mentioning the stuff about like loving seventies films is that I can I I can forgive a lot, but it's just patently mediocre. <laughs> so, I am uh, I'm gonna talk about a film I. I had my list of films I wanted to talk about. This leapt to the top. Usually I, I wait till later in the podcast, but I cannot wait to tell you about this film. And the reason I haven't said the title yet is because I knew it was going to be good, right? Because I chucked it on. Uh, obviously, it was on Amazon Prime. And from the start, I actually didn't know what like, what he was even called. Because it's I know it stars Lou Ferrino. And on Amazon Prime, it says, The Adventures of Hercules 2. But mm. when it loads up, it says The Adventures of Hercules. So I thought, well, is this a sequel or not? And I'm now looking, as I talk to you, on Wikipedia. And the first film in 1983 was called Hercules. The second film is called The Adventures of Hercules. But on the poster, it says The Adventures of Hercules 2. <laughs> so I was, it's a sequel, whatever whatever wow. it's called. The artwork, by the way, it's one of those, you know, um, like the sword and the sorceress with David Carradine on the front, sporting a body he has never had. Um, I, I know it well. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's quite funny because like, on the covers, these drawn covers of Lou Ferrino, and of course, he actually has that physique pretty much, so at least that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the film is amazing. Um, it's it's 88 minutes long, right? But this sequel, I found out, is it only has 35 minutes of new footage in it. I've never seen the, the, the original Hercules from 83. And they didn't even tell Lou Ferrino that it was going to be this film. They just like had him doing stuff in the woods, basically. And just said, I asked for a film called like Gladiator or something. And so he must have been so surprised when this came out. Not as surprised as I was when I was watching it. It's Golan Globus. <laughs> it's produced by Golan Globus. So you know, you know you're in for an absolute treat. This film was made in 1985. And I, you, I could have believed it was made in 1965. The story is that Zeus has got seven mighty thunderbolts that keep peace and they get stolen by these evil gods. Uh, and for some reason, these thunderbolts stolen from the sky cause the moon to go on a collision course to Earth. So Zeus okay. sends Hercules down to Earth to attack these and kill these seven uh, sort of deities, evil deities. Uh, and each one of them has got the thunderbolt inside them. So he needs to kill them to get the seven thunderbolts back. Um Lou Ferrino's voice is dubbed, um, dubbed with with an American's voice. Fine, you know that often happened back in the day. Mm. But what Zeus doesn't say when he sends Hercules back is, 
that the seven mighty thunderbolts hidden in these evil deities are luckily kept by these gods that live in and around Burnham on Sea. So he doesn't actually have to travel that far. Um, <laughs> he basically spends all of him like wandering around the woods talking to burners. Um, <clears throat> the, the fight scenes are astonishing. For a start, the introduction right goes on. It's probably still going on now in a parallel universe because they they spend so much time filling up the like the blank footage just with like saying, oh, this is what happened in the first film. They're doing these like freeze frames, fade-ins, fade-outs with text. And I'm like, it's been like 50 minutes. Is this film going to start? And it's because they've only got half an hour. We were watching Maniac Cop too. <laughs> no, I was actually watching. What was that ninja film I watched? Oh, that was the same with reused footage as well. It's just something I'm drawn to. Uh, Strike of the Panther, and um, oh yes. And yeah, so of course you've got 35 minutes of Lou Ferrino acting out the events of the, the actual film, but then you've got an hour around that that's got to be filled. So it's just constantly cutting to people standing in clouds, just just talking bollocks, oh, absolute bollocks, oh. just as just loads and loads of nonsense dialogue. The, King Minos is someone who I guess is the main antagonist from the first film that is brought back to stop Hercules on his quest. And he is constant. Do you remember the lost skeleton of Cadavera? Uh, the amazing scene where the scientist is sat in his car with his wife and he says um uh it must be hard for you scientist's wife that is the wife of a scientist to be a scientist's wife i am a scientist you are my wife and it goes on like that this film is very much like that but without the sense like of self-awareness yeah. there's a king minos the evil guy keeps on talking about science in this he's constantly saying i'm going to kill all the gods and bring science to the world and show the power of science through through evil science and yet as he says these right. things he's wielding a magic sword on a flying mountain in space and he's turning mm. into mythical creatures and i was mm. like that, you are not playing with a chemistry set you are doing the opposite of that um it's just it's it just kind of undermines his uh, his ideology there a little bit doesn't it it does. Um, it, it's a sequ- It's the fight scenes are so underwhelming because they use everything though. They throw everything in it. So there's a sequence where Hercules goes to. Um, they find this. Well, for a start, the introduction sequence shows him pushing apart mountains, right? Pushing apart mountains and hitting someone so hard that he flies into space and goes around the world twice, right? So he has got a hell of a bang on him when he puts his mind to it. And then, of course, what happens when the film starts? is you just see him just getting overwhelmed by four dudes in suits in a forest and then running into a cave. So he's in this cave, right? And there's people around supposed to be turned to stone, clearly just been spay painted grey, trying to be trying to keep still. And um like Enough. something from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And he says he's walking around saying, These people, they appear to have been turned to stone at a moment of extreme duress or tension. We better keep our wits among us. And I'm thinking, you're Hercules. Like, surely when you went to school, in Greek school, someone told you what Medusa was. And he's just completely blindsided by it. Anyway, so it goes on like this. He kills two of these gods, by by the way, by hitting them with a stick. And the special effects at the end literally look like something from an AHA video. Because they just turn into these weird neon lights and just have a basically pencil. I was going to ask, actually, like, if it has any kind of budget behind it, but from the sounds of it it's all in the 60s there's a bit where he gets kidnapped by well he gets beaten up by these amazon warriors and they specifically say it's a load of women these like trained women it's clearly just dudes with wigs on um wow. and then, 
he gets knocked out and wakes up on a huge spider's web, right? And I'm thinking, good, I'm going to see a stop-motion spider. And they say, Arachne, queen of the spiders, will kill Hercules. He, mm. She stands in front of him, and he strangles her to death without even standing up. Um, and then so she's gets, just a woman. She's just a woman, yeah, walks up to him and gets strangled. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's brilliant, basically. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I think you should, I think everyone should watch. So you basically start with your film of the week, okay. I, yeah, so you, that's it, the, the legend. So is it possible to find the original anywhere? I mean, the one, well, well, I suppose you don't really need to see the original if they're just reusing all the footage from it. Yeah, I feel like I've seen it anyway, really. I mean, I will watch it because it was it was amazing just to see what would happen next. So they would say, set up the set piece. Like, there's a bit where he says, we need to travel to the underwater city of Atlantis and find the secret palace and get these this vial from a mermaid. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm sure that's going to look fantastic in this film. And then it just cuts to them walking on some superimposed, like sort of a superimposed background in like a fish tank. And he literally takes three steps and says... Oh, this must be the palace. And he goes in and there's just three women sitting on bricks and say, oh, here's the vial. This isn't as majestic as, <laughs> as, as, as you, you made it sound a few minutes ago, weirdly. So <laughs> it said, fantastic. Oh, my God, that sounds amazing. Was Lou Ferrino in the first one? I guess he must have been. Yeah, yeah, he was in the first one, yeah. Yeah, yeah otherwise... If they're going to use all the flashbacks, they'd have to like superimpose them into it. It does tickle me because actually, which I wouldn't put it past him, frankly. <laughs> the first film I just clicked on it as you said that. Then uh, Hercules, nineteen eighty-three, and the plot is two lines on Wikipedia, and it says the film is a retelling of the story of Hercules battling the wizard king Minos, who uses science in inverted commas in an attempt to take over the world. It's worth watching it just because it's quite clear that King Minos doesn't fully grasp what science is because what he's wielding is magic. It's essentially the same plot as well, isn't it? Okay. Um, good. Well, I'll watch that then. Um, <clears throat> well, it falls into the wheelhouse of early to mid-80s, like, high fantasy. So I, I'm up for that. It's always good for love. Um, okay, I'll, I'll move on to... what? Where was that, by the way? That must be on Prime. You know it was on Prime, yeah. Of course I do. Um, on to Netflix then I watched Saving Private Ryan which is a slightly different film this <laughs> um, <laughs> this starts with D-Day well kind of starts with D-Day there's actually a, a scene before that but essentially the first sort of scene set in World War 2 is D-Day and it's one of the great action sequences um, with the troops landing on the beaches of Normandy and mostly getting mown down. But um, Tom Hanks, is, his captain, uh, leads his uh, his group across the beach um, and they survive. They make it to the camp and, and that. And then they're... they're soon told to lead a group of soldiers deep into occupied French territory to retrieve um, Private Ryan and bring him home. The reason being that Private Ryan's three brothers all died pretty much at the same time and the command doesn't want his mother to get a fourth folded flag. Um, so off they go. <clears throat> and I like this film. Um, it's not really 
particularly controversial opinion, but I like this film because deep down it's, it's quite an old-fashioned sort of boy's own adventure, except it's wrapped in a very brutally honest approach to violence. Uh, it's even old-fashioned in a way because it's not really an anti-war movie as such, because it's although it is scary and horrible and the violence is very raw and real, it is depicting something very honourable. I mean, the very plot of it is very honourable. The fact that they're, you know, risking this group of men for the sake of one. And, I mean, you've got to set aside the fact that thousands of men were sent to their deaths in this war and, um, well, the the Great War of 1914. Um, but we're focusing on the ones... Uh, committed to honouring a grieving mother. Uh, and that's what, you know, that's what uh, Spielberg does. He points towards the, the light rather than the darkness. As Stanley Kubrick pointed out, um, Schindler's List isn't about 6 million Jews who died, is about 600 who lived. So that's what Spielberg does. But that's fair enough. The ultimate message is about appreciating the freedoms we now take for granted. And I'm pretty sure this film changed the way that war combat was portrayed on screen. So I haven't really seen anything like this before. We got flashes of it, I suppose, in Schindler's List. But this was the first film. This was made in 98. Uh, this was the first film to thrust us onto the front line and actually represent the feeling, the sensations of combat, if you like. It's um, it's just a combination of amazing blocking and direction and editing and production design and sound design all coming together. And Spielberg is known as a bit of a sentimentalist, but actually if you look at his body of work, he knows, he just knows how to deploy sentimentality effectively and appropriately because there's basically no real sentimentality in Saving Private Ryan as such. Like the, the moving moments are quietly moving like, Giovanni Rabisi's character like having his regrets about not valuing time with his mother and then his death later on and John Spoiler. Williams score yeah right um John Williams score it's like it's it, it never it's never trying to inform you of what you should be feeling it's stately but it, it just it just exists as a kind of mood piece it's not sweeping strings saying oh this is a sad moment so here's here's a load of descending chords and it's like oh it's so sad none of that sort of thing so that's to be commended as well the other really interesting character is the character of upham who's played by uh what is his face jeremy davis um who has a very distinct acting style um and he is i, I think of upham he's quite He's kind of taken along for the journey. Um, he's a translator. He's not a combat soldier by any means. He's just there to translate. And he's terrified most of the time. In fact, the whole time. And in a way, he's kind of us, the audience, the people along for the ride, if you like. He's he's basically acting as 99% of us would in these sorts of circumstances, as in, in combat circumstances. And I, and I feel like the end of his arc in the film is a callback to come and see the great Russian war movie, anti-war movie, uh, where war has 
and the, like witnessing combat has so surgically extracted his innocence and his humanity and and i know that spielberg was a big fan of come and see i know that he showed it to his crew on schindler's list to, to try and capture some of the the horrors of that film and um so yeah it's a really interesting character um and it's a good film very good film it's a milestone in terms of combat portrayal i guess uh ridley scott pretty much took up the mantle then with like black hawk down made a similar similarly brutal combat war movie and pretty much all war combat is uh, and then thin red line as well terence malick's film i guess all combat from then on all war combat was pretty much depicted or at least strive to depict things in this much more honest, raw way. It did set a new standard, so, and it still holds up. It's just very good. Is Barry Pepper in that? He's very much in this. He is a Bible quoting sniper. Yes. Has he got like a sort of pinched, certainly shocked looking expression with furrowed brows? But he must be thinking of someone else, Brit. Can't be <laughs> him. Oh, I must be thinking of Walter Matto again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's actually yeah. played by Walter in the film. Another film um, I watched, <laughs> really. Yeah, Walter Matthau playing a character called Barry called Pepper. Barry Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> playing someone of 40 years as junior. <laughs> um, uh, I watched a film on Netflix called Love and Monsters, uh, directed by Michael Matthews and starring uh, Dylan O'Brien uh, and Michael Ruckergood. Um, you, I'm guessing you've seen this as you're scrolling through because it seems it was quite pushy for me to watch this for some reason. Are you familiar uh, with it at all? I, I've, yeah, I've, I think I've seen it it's on my top. recommended. It, but should I add it to my watch list? Oh, you'll find out, won't you? Um, Dylan O'Brien, by the way, is someone I'm slowly beginning to fancy because I saw another film called American Assassin. He plays a very different character. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, this is a film yeah, where... I know him because oh, I've seen that, American Assassin. It wasn't very good, but yeah i did like um, him in it yes he's got some presence isn't he um and it's when you watch that and i watched this first and then that and i was i think it made me enjoy american assassin more one because um oh, michael okay. king was in it and two is like oh wow that's that's so different <laughs> it's such a different role um is, is he the kid in maze runner in that as well yes i've never seen yeah maze i only watched the first maze runner it wasn't very good but again yeah he has some quality yeah uh, so this is a Love and Monsters. It's a film set after Earth uh, has basically ended effectively because there was a, an asteroid heading for Earth and upon blowing it up, it caused a lot of sort of fallout to fall to Earth and mutated. It doesn't really go into too much depth, which is good. Mutated all of the sort of household bugs and incest to massive proportions uh, and that has led to humanity effectively being wiped out. And now the, what remains of humanity live in underground bunkers um and the film starts with a character called joel who has been living underground for a good few years his parents have died and he is wanting to find his girlfriend amy who they were just getting together and sort of fall in love before uh, the insects happened and he wants to travel across that's only 80 miles to another colony to to find her but it's been a long time since it's been seven mm -hmm. years i think since they've seen each other they recently get back in radio contact so the film is very much a road movie where it's just him coming out of the completely unprepared uh because he plays a character that's sort of um 
really well-meaning but just quite sort of initially meek there's a there's a funny scene at the start where he's got this crossbow that he's like made from like cans of spray paint and stuff and it, when it fires it goes about six feet like a nerf gun and these huge cockroaches burst into the into the colony and he's just about to get killed and he freezes and he's literally standing frozen in abject terror and crying in silence this wide-eyed silence and someone shoots it and then he says oh, did i shoot it and they say no it's sort of being so scared you don't know what you're doing um so yeah it's he's he's a really amiable character it's it's done in a um a, a sort of kick-assy uh although not as irritating as that film like a he's narrating his story story to us and he the the, the bulk of it he leaves the colony and it's just the things and the monsters he, in, he encounters along the way to seeing amy again i really like this because it felt like it was it was kind-hearted it had a, a little message and it wasn't too sentimental there were some really the moments where he bumps into certain things are really tense because you think how are you gonna get out of this and it, and it boils down to like extreme luck a lot of the time there's also a callback to a boy and his dog which i will never get bored of because he is he is obviously a boy and he comes across a dog but the dog he befriends is called a boy so That's uh, amazing they uh they they're going along and it's just sort of seeing what they get up to very colorful film uh and there's some really nice you're basically just seeing what they're going to sort of happen across next and obviously they bump into michael rooker who plays a really wizened old um sort of survivalist that without giving any spoilers away this is sort of a tiny tiny spoiler but one thing i i did sort of take a slight umbrage with was there's a message at the end of the film uh where which I'm not going to say what it is. I just, just if people watch it, I just want them to bear these words in mind. There's a message at the end of the film that I think is a good message and a positive message in our lives to to, to give to people now. But in right. the specific situation and world this film inhabits, it it just seems really dangerous. Okay, <laughs> it's like the, so. The, it the sounds a bit shoehorned, laudable but shoehorned. Yeah, I just thought yeah yeah it's. Is a little, an actual message in the film being generated over the airwaves to people to tell them to do something, and I'm thinking, uh, I <laughs> think you're putting them in danger. So, uh, but no, it's a really cool film, and it, it started off my possible love affair with with Dylan O'Brien. Yeah, and it's, quite, it's quite lighthearted. It feels quite teeny, but um, it is it is really cool. There's some nice moments. Okay. I, I just checked out the cast list. I noticed that Bruce Spence is amongst the cast, and he was, of course, the gyrocopter pilot from Road Warrior. Good. So it's nice. Oh, to God, yes. Nice. He must be old. He's at least 35, well, I think. 75. <laughs> um, okay, I'm, def- I'm definitely going to watch that. What's it on? That sounds like a Netflix job. It was on Netflix, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a Netflix job because it wasn't made in 1986. So, um, right. Um, I'm going to swing over to Disney Plus now and talk about The Beach, which I'd never seen um, for various reasons. And it's almost like watching it, it, it kind of confirmed why I never bothered watching it. But anyway, so Leonardo DiCaprio plays a smug little git who goes on an adventure to Thailand drinks some snake blood and then he's given to uh, given a map to a mythical beach by a bonkers man played by Robert Carlyle 
who then goes on to slash his throat. Slash his own throat, I mean. Um, he slashes so, his own anyway. throat. Yes. Did he slip yeah. while he was buttering well, his toast or something? Was it? Did he was pretty bonkers. Well, <laughs> I, I can't remember whether the, the film throws in any ambiguity about that, but I'm not sure it really matters that much. Anyway, so Leonardo DiCaprio, he goes off <clears throat> to find this uh, this beach, this isle, on this remote island, uh, with a couple of tagalongs, and why? He why does he? Find... Why this beach specifically? Sorry, because it's so mythical, and it's like it's like the ultimate adventure because it's like all hidden, and it requires you to swim like a mile across the ocean to get there. And oh right, apparently, okay. there's a community of people there, um, which indeed he does find. There is a community of people there, um, community of conspicuously healthy-looking young people, all young people on this island, living off the land. It's it's idyllic for a while but then a love triangle causes some problems and then some sharks cause further problems <laughs> and they do, they do do that and there is a gang of well sort of native people but essentially just gunmen really on the island who are getting a bit sick of these encroachers um and then Finally, Leonardo is, he's ostracized from the group for luring other people to the island. Um, so basically, Leonardo DiCaprio makes a bunch of stupid, stupid mistakes and he lies and he ends up ruining the whole thing, really. Um, it's the kind of movie that absolutely needs a likable lead actor because the character is so irritating and stupid. Um, and perhaps one of the themes of the film is the nature that nature of impulsivity like throwing away good things in favor of potentially dangerous things simply for the sake of change or adventure and in that regard it may have something to say um it definitely reflects the mood of young people at the time when was this this was like early 2000s might have been bang on 2000 i think it's not been just before all the kind of fear of foreigners horrors kicked off wasn't it with well yeah just, i guess yeah and it's very individualistic in its outlook it's very critical of the rat race um there's there's some very dated elements in it there's this whole sequence where he kind of he's going a bit bonkers and he enters into this sort of banjo kazooie kazooie style ps1 graphics um kind of little romp through the jungle so are the polygons clashing on the scene well or? it's it's done in a kind of like he you can it's sort of the the it's like real footage but pixelated and it's got like um a score in the top corner and lives and stuff and it's all a bit and it's got a stupid plinky plonky chip tune soundtrack um this the soundtrack itself uh is very much of the time with a lot of breakbeat and dance music um i'm it's Danny Boyle, so I guess he used a lot of Underworld stuff. Um, there's an internet cafe in it. Wow. Um, remember them? Uh, yeah, so anyway, the, but that's okay. I mean, that's all dated stuff. But the story is pretty silly, and the depiction of this little community seems very fanciful, really. Uh, there's no real sense of the practical functioning of the place, and, and it makes it even more difficult to relate to the people there and i i know well this is something that i i read um about danny boyle who had 
does not regard this as one of the best in his canon, put it that way. Um, he apparently, he, he realised halfway through filming that he, quote, didn't like any of the characters. And that is a bit of an issue in a film like this. I not, I mean, films don't necessarily need likeable characters, but a film like this kind of does in a way because it's got such a, a broad range of them sort of thing. You have to be able to understand where they're coming from. And I didn't get that really. I, I didn't. I didn't have any sympathy or empathy for any of them. It's not really helped by Leonardo DiCaprio's weirdly bored-sounding voiceover. He doesn't seem to believe the words he's saying. Remember, I don't know if you've ever seen the original cut of Blade Runner, where Harrison Ford was basically forced to do this narration over the top, and he and he famously just didn't want to do it he didn't think it was necessary he was right but anyway if you listen to the the narration it, it sounds ridiculous it's like he's falling asleep but it's then like, but then it's you've like got steven it's just like falling asleep whilst ordering a chinese or whatever. so <laughs> he shows this like luscious mythical beach and leander dicaprio is just uh prawn crackers and uh, yeah. uh, orange well, <laughs> It'd be so funny if Leonardo DiCaprio, there was a scene where he ordered a Chinese and he had to wait like three weeks for it to get to the island. It um, would be but he, but um, he did, but he did. It would also be unsafe to eat. He would, um, but he did a voiceover, in, for instance, like The Wolf of Wall Street. In fact, a lot of his films he does a voiceover yeah. for. And he yeah. can do them. So, yeah, that yeah, energetic. And, uh, and uh, it doesn't seem completely outside his kind of, uh, it doesn't seem totally beyond his persona, like his real world persona to kind of appreciate this, um, this kind of uh, natural beauty. Yeah. Yeah. He's very, yeah. Very much like living off the earth. You know, he's, he's got all his uh, kind of ecological agenda and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't seem that ridiculous. He just doesn't seem interested at all. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I know he was second choice. I know that Ewan McGregor was originally going to be that character and it's, from the sounds of it, the studio basically insisted on Leonardo DiCaprio because um, he'd be more of a kind of box office draw. So I don't know whether there's some resentment there. I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm kind of sceptical about the use of voiceover in films generally. I, it's fine if they're quite spare or if they're ironic or if they're unreliable, That then they can serve a function. But if their function is purely to fill in the gaps and inform you of stuff, that could have been depicted on screen. It just feels like script bandaging, in my opinion. It's not an unenjoyable film. It's just very far from um, essential in Danny Boyle's quite varied canon. So it, it, it was exactly what I imagined it would be. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I could have, I could have lived another twenty years without seeing it. To be honest. Escape Plan 3 or Escape Plan The Extractors. Now, I saw the original Escape Plan because it paired Sylvester Sloan and Arnie and it wasn't very good. And then I saw the second Escape Plan, Escape Plan 2 Hades, and it was even worse. So I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a crap series of films. <laughs> so, um, this is just the, the, the returns aren't even diminished now. It's just someone opening a drawer and saying, oh, there's nothing in this drawer. Um, someone has stolen all of our returns (laughs) this this is an empty bureau Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, the, the the first film though, Escape Plan, right, 2013. It was a film where uh, Sylvester Stallone as Ray Breslin would be put in these seemingly inescapable prisons and then you know find a way out, not in a cool way, in a, in what actually turned out to be a really boring clinical way, right? So even the initial, it wasn't well written enough to be interesting and it wasn't clever enough to be to stick with. Um, and even the kind of interplay between him and Arnie was just quite flat. So there was nothing going on there. This third film is really low budget. And it's all Sylvester Stallone, I think. It, I thought he produced it. It just came across as that sort of, is he in this just because he's produced it and he's just in there in the hope it'll get a few more people watching. Um, but I look at you backtrace. But no, he's, he's just in it as the star. And he's clearly too old to be doing this kind of thing. The plot is that... A Chinese businesswoman gets kidnapped by someone who leaves a USB stick with Ray Breslin's data on it, uh, played by Sylvester Stallone. And it turns out this person is Devon Sawa of Final Destination fame, who plays a good bad guy, actually, in the couple of films I've seen him in. Um, And he is the son of Vincent D'Onofrio's character from the previous film, who... uh, who was killed and so his son wants revenge on Sylvester Stallone and so he kidnaps his girlfriend so he's got a reason to get involved in this um, this whole uh, kidnapping story now it's called Escape Plan the Extractors but the film is very literally right Sylvester Stallone gets they turn up they say right she's been kidnapped and your girlfriend's been kidnapped he says right we're going to get them they're in a prison called something like hell's bin shed or something and he and he they just go in with guns blazing there's no plan they just go in there's a bit where they look at blueprints and that's about it but um they just go in um and yeah, Dave Bautista's in this. And to be honest, the best scenes in the film are the few all too brief moments where he gets into hand to hand combat with someone else because it's quite guttural. Um, it's actually him. No one, no one wants to be in this film. Sylvester Stallone, um, his voice is so like sort of garbled now that twice I had to rewind things and put the subtitles on to see what he said. Um, because there's one part where he says, prisoners. And I was like, what did he say? Because she says, oh, it looks like there's 30 to 40 bodies in there. And he just sort of goes, and I thought, did he say pardon? Because that's what I want to say. But no, it's prisoners. Uh, And yeah, it's just just total nonsense. There's a nice little knife fight at the end. But what tickles me is this is called Escape Plan. It's a a series of films that doesn't need to exist anyway. But at least at least stick to the blueprint you know at least what made it different was like he goes into these high-tech prisons to get someone out he doesn't go to and yeah at the start you know you, i knew it it said oh where's she been where, where the film starts and she gets kidnapped from an industrial estate <laughs> right an industrial estate and an empty warehouse hangar and then they say where's she been taken to and i thought don't tell me I will guess she has been taken to somewhere in Eastern Europe, hasn't she? And boom, it's Latvia. Um, and, and of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, yeah. And yeah, they just, um, it just turned into just a total nonsense action, a thong with just no one's heart in it, really. Um, you, here's, you know, the, the actual facility itself would have been built in that same industrial estate, presumably. Oh, yeah. They probably just went across the road. We're in Latvia now. Um, <laughs> um, Sylvester Stallone, by the way, I'm going to spoil this, but no one cares. 
he gets over the death of his girlfriend that he was literally going to propose to at the start of the film. She dies within hours of him like proposing to her. He is joking at the end of this with Batista. He is cracking gags. He is he got over a death fast. There's a needless sort of denouement that you think don't set up another film. Don't do that because even that tiny bit of emotional investment that people would have is removed by having that little jokey sequence at the end. Um, so yeah, it's it's not even worth watching if you like Vincent D'Onofrio because all of his stuff is archival footage. So just watch the second film again. Brilliant. I can't imagine that be a fourth. I think this no. one was straight to video, wasn't it? Straight to. Oh yeah. Video. I mean, they've all been. The the first one was like at best. A novelty this one is just this is just a bad cheap film well, i think the first one was, was still it was still the novelty was arnie really wasn't it coming back from politics yeah. into back into acting and that so yeah um but that dream has faded um yes okay yeah i well i won't watch that i don't even remember the first one to be honest so I won't watch the second one, so the chances of me getting anywhere near the third one are low. Where would it be if one were to watch it? It was on Netflix. Sticking with Disney Plus, The Good Son. It's a quick one as well. This is a 1993 horror slash thriller, which I'm just going to say up front, it uses Comic Sans for the credits. <laughs> it uses Comic Sans. What I guess because it's The Good Son. Oh, God. Hang on. This is the one with yes. Macaulay Culkin, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, um, so. it, I guess it's using Comic Sans because it has children in it. But uh, I don't know. Anyway, so Elijah Wood is the son of David Morse. David Morse in this film sports an an unironic mullet. It is just there. And you know what David Morse's hair is like? It's quite unwieldy anyway, so it's like, I don't know, you're the wrong man for this job, <laughs> David. Um, anyway, so they, after Elijah Wood's mother dies um, and they're kind of grieving, uh, David Morse, he has to go on a business trip a vital business trip so he leaves elijah wood with uh, his aunt and uncle in their remote home now the aunt and uncle have a son played by macaulay culkin it turns out macaulay culkin is a vicious little son of a bitch uh like it starts off with just general nastiness and then it turns into literally horrendous pranks like one point like throwing a dummy off a bridge a road bridge and causing a massive car crash oh the japes of children eh um <laughs> but of course he's uh, he's loved by his parents um his mother his mother um basically is is quite traumatized understandably by the death of another child they had who, who drowned in the bath um so she's she's attached to macaulay culkin in quite an unhealthy way um um so anyway elijah wood is trying to say like okay your son's a maniac but no one believes him of course and he's kind of yeah out of his depth so anyway 
And so Macaulay Culkin is very, very calculating. And, and this is a problem with this film because I'm just going to say kids are stupid, right? So these kids are what? Like, I get they're just preteens, so it would have been like 10 or 12. The, the kids are stupid. The idea of a preteen child being this calculating and this clever, it's just too silly to scare me. And I, I get that kids uh, can be cruel and vicious and immoral, maybe, but they're not smart. And some of the some of his kind of convoluted plans in this film, his foresight in setting up these events is it brings me back to um, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle, which I spoke about last time. And I quite enjoyed that the way that there was the the schemes were so thought through so far ahead but you can imagine that with a really scheming adult but a child it just doesn't it doesn't scare me because it's too implausible there's some quite lovely scenery uh throughout rural maine i will say that so that's a good thing about the film but it's just so silly and implausible you just can't get away from that and nice scenery isn't enough and the way the truth is uncovered at the end is particularly stupid like Macaulay Culkin's mum literally just asks him, are you an evil bastard? And he says, yeah, yeah, I am actually. Sorry about that. And that's that's how it kicks off. And it's really corny. And it, it is clearly cashing in on Macaulay Culkin's angelic status because, of course, this would have been not long after, well, not long after the original Home Alone, probably just after the second one, I guess. Yeah, I think Home Alone 2 was, what, 1990 or whatever? Yeah, so so it's clearly cashing in on that, which is understandable, I suppose. But this, the trouble is that backfires as well because he's, Macaulay Culkin, he's just really doing the same, that same, you know, that narrow-eyed, nasty intent kind of look that he adopted in Home Alone when he was planning on taking out the bad guys. He kind of just does that. And so he's just doing the same acting, really. It's that, obviously, to much more nefarious ends. But it, I, it is, it, I can see what it was like a kind of like a counterintuitive piece of casting, but it doesn't work at all. The whole film looks really cheap and it's really dumb. And I've spoken about Orphan before on this podcast, which is a much yeah. better, much creepier, much more complex film. Obviously, a much more recent film, but there really isn't any particular reason to go back to this when you've got a film like Orphan, which is just a lot better. And even if you're watching Orphan and as you're watching it, you think, oh, do you know what? This isn't for me. You can at least close your eyes and just pretend that Peter Sarsgaard is uh, John Malkovich. So there's a little yeah, mini game in there for you as well. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the pro tip. <laughs> My next film is a 1988 American slasher, and it is called Grandmother's House by Nico Masterakis. I'm guessing you've seen this because it's an 80s slasher. I haven't, although I have seen other Nico Masterakis films. He's he's like a, a he's like a slightly he's like Albert Pune, but he's leveled up, basically. <laughs> Well, yeah, and he just doesn't film the things on industrial estates. He he actually goes to farms as well. He gets on a bus. Um, so this this is a it was quite an odd film. It's a film about two uh, teenagers called Dave. Well, this is this is the thing about the film. 
the girl, Lynn, the boy called David is the younger brother, and Lynn is sister. They never sort of say how old she is. She looked about 14 to me, but the film is quite sort of leery of her like young physique, and you're like, nah, it doesn't need to be like this. But either way, um, yeah, David and Lynn, the two, the two kids, uh, are orphaned, and they're sent up to rural California to live with their grandparents who own an orange farm. And the, fil- the film sort of, I thought this is going to be a 90-minute sort of slow burn or are are they are they dodgy or are they just kids looking into it too much? I basically got vibes of the visit. Um, M. Night Shyamalan. I thought I, I I can imagine very much that he would have seen this film, and I was quite excited thinking this is going to be an eighty slow burn horror, um, like Pin or something like that. But in actual fact, <laughs> what happens is <laughs> they they turn up on this farm and they're like, oh, you know, grandparents are a bit weird. When really they've got no reason to think that they're just quite old fashioned, and. The first night, um, the the son, uh, sorry, the the grandson David, ha- has this dream where he sees his grandparents dragging in a hitchhiker that they've seen that day driving over there, and cutting her up in the basement. And when he wakes up from the dream, lo and behold, that very same day, that's what happens within like twenty minutes in the film. So they, <laughs> he just sees them dragging a woman that they've uh, attacked and like putting her in a fridge in the basement. They're not allowed to go down. So you know there's something going on. And then from then on, quite frankly, it's the film just kicks off and it's just like a fifty-minute like chase movie around a, a, a farm. Um, <laughs> so it was a it was a different uh, pacing to what I was expecting. There's a really nice sequence in this. You you pointed it out um, before with. You've got films like Cop Car, where you see kids acting as kids uh, yeah. in a really believable way. There's a, there's a sequence in this where they, they're on their farm and they're obviously just bored. And the teenage girl is um, just trying to pull this, quite quite frankly, when she meets him, I thought he was about 20. And he just like really, really forcefully kisses her. And he just looks a bit dopey. And I thought she would just slap him. But no, she falls in love with him. And it's like, okay, whatever. So she spends the whole film kind of necking with him in a ridiculous car. And this, this, the grandson goes off and he befriends a local um, guy the same, a kid the same age. And they go on this sort of, it's only like a 10, 15 minute sort of sojourn where they go through the sewers and they're telling each other, you know, he's telling the David, the grandson, these scary stories about what happens on the farm and that everyone thinks his grandparents are weird. And they play with fireworks by a lake. And it was, for a moment, it was like quite a nice coming of age sort of movie. And I forgot I was mm. watching a trashy slasher. Um, <laughs> When it kicks off, it's just ridiculous. It is just the most ridiculous chase sequence I've seen in a film where the two. The, it turns out that the um, the hitchhiker is their mother, who's just been released from a uh, an, a, an asylum uh, because she attacked them when she was younger or something, and she's just screaming and running around like Shelley Duvall, just trying to kill her kids. Although we see her seeing her grandson. Um, at like a, a swimming competition and she's just standing in the mm. crowd looking at him and seems quite normal just a bit sort of odd but then yet the second she sees him on the farm she just cannot stop attacking him to kill them which is a bit odd you'd think she'd just do that earlier on um so the, the film the film sort of trickles on and it, and this is a, i'm just going to spoil it because i have to mention it because it was such a dark ending um so the film goes on and the grandparents it turns out are kind of twistedly in the right where they're trying to kill the mother and hide her body before she can do anything to the kids because they know what she's capable of and so you think oh actually a bit of a twist okay they're you know the way it's filmed we're actually on their side right cool and then we find the grandmother dead and the grandma uh, 
the grandmother dead and the grandfather taking the mother's body into the into the basement we see at the start of the film and then the final line of the film is just him revealing to the grandson uh, that he is a product of incest rape between the the mother and the grandfather and he's mm. going to rape her again before the grandson kills her with an accent it's like that's like a really dark nasty yeah. final twist that really didn't need to be there it <coughs> kind of it kind of tint, taints the whole thing it's like okay um but it's a trashy slasher and it's more fun than scary if you can yeah. sort of ignore that last line of the film um that sounds intriguing what's it called again grandmother's house yeah grandmother's house although it should yeah. be called grandparents house because there's there's no it doesn't lean more yeah. towards one than the other um it's that's on prime i'm guessing yeah Yes, yeah. it is. Well, it is. I, you also, got... when you when you watch it, right, the deputy, and I yeah. say this hands down, outside of Al Clivers, the deputy in this film is the worst actor I've ever seen. <laughs> outside of Al Cliver. Yeah. Okay. It, he's, he's in there. It literally, I wouldn't be surprised if he was reading his lines off the dashboard. Amazing. Um, well, seeing as you've talked about a Nico Mastarakis film, I will too because Whoa. I watched one um, called Blind Date. Not that one. Oh, my God. I almost watched this. I'm not sure whether you necessarily should. Let's let's wait and see. Uh, it's a 1984 horror starring someone called Joseph Bottoms um, and Kirstie Alley. Um, obviously, it's directed by Nico. He, did, he made Hired to Kill as well, which is essential viewing for anyone with ice um is that the brian thompson one yeah it's a brian thompson one where he takes the um group of models to take down oliver reed the, <laughs> the scene where brian thompson is seducing oliver reed is one of the greatest scenes in cinema it's amazing <laughs> anyway so this one blind day it's largely post-dubbed set in athens it's a young american man swan's hair product <laughs> who constantly listens to his Walkman too? Um, this terror, and he's he's clearly listening to like um, music, like public domain music. I don't know what it is. It's not like a recognizable music. It's like this terrible synth pop music, and or sub super tramp soft rock. It's really awful cheesy music anyway he works for a fashion magazine which means we get a couple of swim swimsuit montages of course um but anyway he loses his sight um and then uh he is inducted into this experimental scientific endeavor to <laughs> to get his sight back and it's done using experimental sonar tech he basically has an upgraded Walkman essentially and uh, he can turn it on and it uses sonar to kind of bounce off the world around him to allow him to see using using this visual synthesis as if we're looking through the eyes of a computer it's called CompuVision and I was really looking forward to like it all being kind of virtual reality but actually what it is is they've just taken just the normal POV footage and just put a filter a really really harsh filter through it so it's just everything's got kind of wireframe around it um anyway and oh, it's loads of ridiculous stuff about this technology like he can record 
this visual data onto like a cassette tape somehow not quite sure how um yeah although there is one scene where he he attaches the um this compuvision system to his atari 2600 and channels break out directly into his brain it's amazing so that's a good sequence anyway so while he, now he's got this kind of newfound uh, site he witnesses a murder and he ends up tracking down this serial killer um he's on the trail of this slasher serial killer um the thing is about this film is I'm not really sure of what the point is of him losing his sight and getting this compuvision thing in the first place because I don't he doesn't really do anything other than add a stylistic flourish because otherwise it would just be a kind of maniac style POV slasher but it's got this stylistic flourish to it which doesn't really need to be there um I mean he can see then he goes blind but then he can see again so it's like okay that's the thing that happened, but it doesn't really make any difference to anything. Um, the quality of his vision is basically irrelevant. So, and the actual story is completely perfunctory. So it's really just a, a flourish for the sake of it. It's one of those serial killer movies where everything is really pervy and voyeuristic, regardless of whether we're looking through the killer's point of view, it's just a bit pervy. Um, the editing is a total mess. Uh, at one point, the, uh, main guy records this monologue describing all this stuff that he's seen and meanwhile we're watching a completely unrelated series of images involving a model and it's like <laughs> it, I, I guess it's going for sort of texture but actually it just makes the film really unwatchable and difficult to follow um, it's part tech thriller part slasher part detective thriller and it's pretty lame on all counts really Um and they, they don't really have any fun or interesting ideas with his limited eyesight. Uh, like, like the, it's pointed out the fact that he can't read stuff or make out faces, for example, but it's not really brought into the film. So he can just basically see. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Um, so the, the conceit only really exists so that he can play back previous footage like a flashback. Um, right. And of course, he doesn't go to the police at any point. Obviously, why would you? Um, if you're on the trail of a serial killer. Um, also, the closed captions in this were really funny. They made me laugh because it kept it kept coming up with things like it would say like moody orchestral music or tense orchestral music, and I was thinking no orchestra got anywhere near that studio. <laughs> it was someone single keys on a keyboard. Um, so it's it's not a very satisfying slasher. And unfortunately, it's not even satisfying in terms of like old, like CG or anything, because you're thinking, or oh, at least you'll get some like really early CG effects, but you don't even get that. It's just a crappy filter. So it's not interesting in that regard either. It's a pity. I mean, it's just, it's just not a very good film. It's not up there with Grandmother's House or Hired to Kill or even the Zero Boys. Grandmother's house, by the way, or Grandma's house. Um, it, it's funny because the person on the cover, it's it, the the tagline. I've gone off it now. I'm on to my next one. The tagline is something like, um, "She'll spoil you to death." But it's like 
in the whole film, the grandmother is the one that's clearly innocent. And on the cover, she's like brandishing two knives. And it's not even the same actor that's in the film. So total nonsense. I, I watched one that isn't as bad as Blind Date, not that one. Um, this is a film that I put it on just purely out of uh, sort of curiosity, really. It's Riddick, the pardon me, 2013 science fiction yeah. film with Vin Diesel. Because yeah. I remember watching... I remember watching Pitch Black in 2000 when I worked. I th- did I work in a video store in 2000? Can't remember. Yes, I did. I would have been 17. So I watched Pitch Black, and I remember thinking, "Oh, that's kind of a cool, like sci-fi horror, wicked." Yeah. And then, although then at the age of 17, I remember thinking, "Him getting his eyes shined, it seems like more of a massive disadvantage than say buying a torch or <laughs> putting on just night vision goggles. It seems like a huge, massive, life-changing disadvantage." <laughs> anyway. Um, the Chronicles of Riddick, 2004. My knowledge of that film amounts to walking into a friend's house like basically five minutes before the end credits and just thinking, bloody hell, this is a very different film to Pitch Black. It seems really it is rich in it's, Yeah, it's bizarre. Chronicles of Riddick. I quite enjoy it. I, I like the fact that it's so ambitious in terms of like expanding the cosmos. Um, and and the fact they album. bothered to... They, they, they chose to go such a different route because the first one's such a like a high concept kind of just horror action thriller, isn't it really? And then Chronicles of Riddick was just yeah, it's like massive sprawling fantasy sci-fi epic. Well, have you seen Riddick? I have seen Riddick. Yeah, and well, I, I think we've. Uh, uh, no, I, I mean I, I think I know what you're going to say about especially the first half hour. Oh right. Um, well, I've got no. I've got no. Um, what's the what's the term like i've got no money in the game for this like i remember yeah. vaguely liking pitch black haven't seen the chronicles riddick so i just chucked this on the first half hour uh, where he is just completely broken wakes up on a planet with a booming sun and he's just desperately trying to survive i was all in i was thinking good right, two hours of this and that is me sorted at nine out of ten and then of course um carl urban's in the film for just a fraction of a second shorter than i am <laughs> Uh, and although I haven't got it's my eyebrows, the one. He, he, I don't, it must be from this. He, it says, yeah. and Carl Urban, and he delivers one line of dialogue in this. Um, yeah, yeah, so he gets knocked off on a planet and basically kicks off with him trying to survive, and then he finds an old sort of outpost. And although he's a really wanted fugitive, he calls in assistance calls in like a sends out a distress beacon and it attracts two groups of mercenaries down to the planet to try and capture him one just killing him getting his head and the other one there's a bit of a subplot because um something to do with the first film where he riddick killed his son and he's now a mercenary his father's a mercenary he wants to get answers um I, yeah the first half hour I was thinking good 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 and then it got a little bit sort of just generic yeah, and Riddick hiding in the desert, and them saying, "No, where's Riddick?" And then everyone else said, "I'm not sure." Um, and and the dialogue was really iffy as well. There's a sequence where um, Riddick is obviously breaking into this camp and then like leaving again. When it would just be if he can do all the things he can do behind their backs in this film, where he literally mm. sneaks in, taking these fuel cells from. Why doesn't he just get on the ship and go, or just kill them all? Just kill them all and go. But um, yeah, there's a sequence in this where there's a woman among the bounty hunters, a burner, who looks um, a little bit like, um, oh, I forget her name. She looks like someone else anyway. And um, is it, you, 
Katie Sackhoff's character, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. She has a shower, and yeah. you see Riddick's hand reach in, and you think he's going to kill her or something, and then he obviously doesn't. And then later on, he unveils to her when he gets captured that you know he saw her in the shower, and then he says, "Oh, you've got a nice shade of nail polish on your toes. It matches your nipples, and it, it comes across as really cre- creepy and." awkward but she mm. reacts as if it's quite sexy and i thought mm. it matches your nipples such an odd thing to say um yeah i uh, <laughs> also the bit that tickled me as well is the end of this film the riddick is in a ship and the someone else is in another ship and they're in they're above the clouds about to go into orbit and they're talking to each other over the radio and the camera pans out and they're a few feet from each other actually facing each other staring into each other's cockpits as they talk Think, mm. why why are you doing that you're on the radio <laughs> are you actually facing each other like in in the sky as well <sighs> um, yeah like you're just chatting across the room i did think it was interesting how it, it like you said in the first film high concept little little horror second one explosive space opera third one if they've obviously said right we'll bring it back to what it was all about but yes, it very much depends on what you like from the first two films um, it doesn't really expand on anything. If anything, it's almost like a like a side story. But um, yeah. But, but I I think I would prefer this to the second because I'm not as into sort of expansive space films as you. Mm. Yeah, I I just it just felt a bit like generic. It it seemed to be trying to please too many people. And of course, when you try and do that, it just you just end up making something which has just got ticks boxes more than anything. Like, like you say, like that that first half hour, you're like, okay, I'm on board with this. This would be pretty cool. Like, it'd be very brave to have a film entirely set around basically a silent character surviving, but it was never yeah. going to stay that way, was it? No, it didn't. Never going to. Okay, I'll um, we'll go through a couple more. I think um, one disappointing, one not disappointing. Um, what was oh, what was Riddicon? Was that on a specific channel? I think that was on Prime, Amazon Prime. Um, I watched, I paid for something on Amazon, and I'll, I'll come to the reason why. It's it's called Come True, and it is a uh, very recent, it was released literally last month. It's a, uh, a horror movie by someone called Anthony Scott Burns. It's about this female teenage runaway who... Goes into this sleep experiment, which basically unlocks a bunch of freaky stuff in her mind. Um, that's basically all you need to know. Um, it's it's high on atmosphere and mood. It does that well, but it's very low on scares and extremely low on any kind of humour. I personally watched it for the music, really, because... Um, the music's by Electric Youth, who are pretty well known um, since band, but also um, and also Pilot Priest. Pilot Priest is the pseud- the musical pseudonym of Anthony Scott Burns, the director. So that was pretty cool. I thought, oh, that's good, and it, and it seemed to have decent reviews. So, um, but yeah, it was a bit disappointing, really. It, it's nicely framed, but oh my god, the, the filter in this movie—it's like looking through a bottle of newcastle brown it's ridiculous <laughs> uh, it's one of those sensory horrors where the protagonist spends a lot of time grimacing basically while loud noises screech on the soundtrack right um 
so she's very damaged this girl going into this sleep experiment there's a guy who works there in this sleep experiment he looks like daniel radcliffe a lot and he falls for her it's not i'm not sure why he falls for her she's clearly a mess and she keeps rejecting him but he's insistent um and i thought well i I about he's meant to be this guy is meant to be he's meant to be the good guy why why doesn't he insist that she's pulled out of the trial because she's clearly a total mess and really struggling even if all the other researchers are unethical which is the kind of conspiracy that um comes up he is not and he and she's clearly massively struggling so that would be the best thing take her out of it stop you know stop doing this stuff anyway part of this sleep experiment is that they can kind of visualize what it is that people are actually seeing when they dream um and kind of relay the pictures back to them afterwards and say well what does this mean etc um the script is far too kind of sparse to provide the characterization that's necessary to answer any of these sort of ethical questions actually the script i'd say is just bad really and the, the acting isn't great either um it seems to have a, a sense of importance about itself it has these really grandiose chapter titles like the persona and the self and things like that and it's clearly trying to create this kind of dreamlike texture in the film they keep going back to this piece of music um by shriek back an 80s band that was used in manhunter as well but mm. It's a case of just reminding us of a better and frankly more convincingly dreamlike film. Um, there is one nice sequence where she watches what a, the, what the guy is dreaming about her, and actually realizes that his kind of attraction to her is quite pure. So that was, it was quite nice. The love story stuff is actually much more effective than the horror stuff has got to be said. Like the horror element, as I said, it's a lot of loud noises um, and you you get some very fleeting creature designs like there's a bit where there's like a pair of legs walking along with a bunch of other legs sprouting out of it which is kind of creepy but you you just glimpse these things really in flashing lights and shadow and and the ending is such a massive cop out it's confusing and then you realize oh it's just a cop out right okay i really wanted to like this film because i like the talent behind it and I guess it does have it does have some atmosphere and, and technically it has a look to it. A slightly annoying filtered look, but at least it's the tr- he's trying something different and he's trying to go for some sort of mood. But it just goes to show, you know, you can't make a good movie from bad script. However technically proficient you are, it just isn't going to work. And that mm. is unfortunately the case. Yes, that's called Come True. Uh, mm, and you'd have to pay for that on Amazon if you really wanted to, but I wouldn't bother. Um, I need you to do me a favour now. I need you to. It, this links into the next film I'm going to talk about. Sure. I need you to go to. I need you to go to Wikipedia and type in Laurence Olivier. Okay. And you, you see the uh, you see the picture of a La- Laurence Olivier on Wikipedia on the right with like the white he shirt on with the some makeup. Yeah. I want you to think about Michael Fassbender. Yes, 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 yes. I'm seeing that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I couldn't. St- <laughs> when I was just doing the cast check for this film, I just couldn't stop thinking 
So they just said, oh, we haven't got any pictures of Lawrence. Mike, can you just get on the cans for 10 years and come back? It's um, something about those eyes, isn't it? It's something about that stare, that slightly but, menacing stare. And, <laughs> and the, yeah, and the kind of flat mouth. Yeah. Um, Everyone uh, do this. I watched Wild Geese 2, which shocked me because I saw Wild Geese and Wild Geese 2 on the shop on the shelves in the video store when I worked there years ago. And I thought I've never watched it, watched them because I thought they were war films and I'm not really bothered by them. But it turns out yeah, the like, this, this like the first this, one was the Richard Burton one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever like seen that one? Film. I, obviously no, I went straight to the sequel. I mean I, I've seen other ones which like it, like Where Eagles Dare and stuff like that. And I figured it was something along those lines. Um, it's not. This is what this, what this film is about. Is a lot of mercenaries trying to big root brick Rudolf Hells out of Spandau Prison in Berlin. So mm-hmm. it's not not really a war film per se. Uh, it stars Scott Glenn, which is what drew me to it because I w- I've realised Scott Glenn is I really like him, but the only film I can ever really well I saw him in uh, he played the character Stick, didn't he, in the um, Daredevil TV show, and then he and prior to that he was in Night of the Running Man as well, which we watched a few years ago and really, really liked. That really rough scene in that film, not The Running Man, Night of the Running Man, um, with, what's his name? Andrew something. Divoff? No, come on, you know, no, you know the one I mean. Mm. Don't make me do this. We watched this together, holding hands. Night of the Running Man starring, oh God, it's going to really, sorry about this. I I have to do this now, otherwise it'll just get on my nerves. Scott Glenn's still alive. How old is he? He must be old. He must be like, yeah, late 70s. He did an interview with um, Mark Maron a few months ago. And it just yeah. seems like he doesn't take an Andrew he's McCarthy. Good. He's been around for ages. I mean, he was good in backdraft. You remember, yeah. yeah, you remember Night of the Running Man. It was the one where the two scenes in that film, John Glover scalding Andrew McCarthy's feet so he can't run away from him. Andrew uh, McCarthy, yeah. Directed by Mark L. Lester. And then that film where... Um, Scott Glenn slashes out the eyes of a homeless man who asks him for change. Um, yeah. So yeah, Wild Geese Two. It starts off, and it, it, it Scott Glenn is a mercenary wandering about London, uh, and he is approached by it appears to be a shady part of the British government who is saying they want to break Rudolf House out of Spano Prison in Berlin, and he is kind of the only man for the job. And he says, yes, I'll do, I'll do it, but I'm going to need the help of Edward Fox, a.k.a. the most English man the world has ever and will ever see. Um, <laughs> and honestly, when he came out, oh, yes, cool. <laughs> it doesn't stop. He's the most English man I've ever laid my eyes on. Um, <laughs> so he plays someone called Alex Faulkner, who is um, uh, supposed to be just as good as Scotland, this is one of those films where we're led to believe they're like this crack team of of mercenaries, you know, and, they, and they're like literally the top of their game. But we never see any evidence of that. Um, well, like for instance, this starts off with Scott Glenn sort of doing his uh, "I'm almost too good for this, but I suppose I'll help you out" routine in office. And then the next step, then we see him beating up someone in a toilet, and then we see mm. him getting bundled into a taxi and beaten up. And you think, are you are you good at your job? Or <laughs> uh, it's the Blade Runner problem, isn't it? Yes. Such a legendary Blade Runner, and yet completely <laughs> incompetent when it comes down to it. Uh, everything constantly in running away or in like abject fear. Um. So yeah, this film 
is it feels long it's two hours long and it really should be a 90 minute kind of canon movie jobby the fact this was released in the same year as commando in 1985 i was surprised by the gulf of quality between them and not so much the gulf of quality the um this film is so po-faced and there's just no sense of fun about it and it's not it's not really stripped down at all it's just plodding footage of people wandering around germany and you know like scott glenn falling in love with a woman and almost throwing the whole operation out because because of his love for her and you think again you're supposed to be these hardened mercenaries this is why they got you for the job and then instantly you're just not doing it properly um Lawrence Olivier plays Rudolf Hess and uh, it's you don't really see him and he has one sort of monologue towards the end I get the impression from reading online he was very ill when this film was made um and most interesting of all um, Charlie from Casualty plays a Northern Irish, well, a member of the IRA in this. I was watching him and I thought, is that? It was, he was kind of fuzzy in the background of one scene. I thought that is that is either Derek Thompson from Casualty or that is a very young David Morse. And I was I was happy with the response <laughs> with who it was. Um, yeah, it's just a bit of a sort of a bloated, slightly tedious film, really. It's not yeah. bad, but it could easily lose 20 minutes of banter and strolling around berlin patrick stewart's in this as well as a russian general good so there's probably balls already is he oh yeah oh god yeah he just looks identical he's always looked identical from excalibur to whatever it was that star trek tv series was in uh generation next generation no the recent one uh picard it's just called picard yeah. That's tedious as well. Um, yeah. Okay. I probably won't watch that. Um, I don't know. The first the first one sounds like it appealed to me more, to be honest, if it is actually a proper war film. Yeah. Um, by, the, by the way, one thing I will say as well, they spend, unlike, um, unlike Escape Plan 3, they actually spend a lot of time going over the blueprints and the plan in this. And it's really funny because what it boils down to is them basically knocking the van over and nicking Rudolf Hess. But it tickles me because throughout the film they keep on saying he's 93 years old, we have to be very careful. And yet they just flip the van and drag him out of the wreckage. (laughs) Like the most the most violent possible way of uh, (laughs) of taking him, yeah. Love it. Um, Okay. Uh, Right. Well, I, I'll just do one more then, and I want to end on a high um, because uh, I, I've watched some pretty disappointing films this week. Oh, okay. So I'm going to talk about a little bit about Executive Decision, which uh, I also watched on Rakuten. Um, so uh, this is a film in which uh, starring Kurt Russell, who plays, he, he works for this think tank, basically, and basically David Suchet, is a Middle Eastern terrorist. More on that later. Um, he he takes over a plane, and Kurt must help determine how to resolve the situation. They devise a plan to get a team on board, a team led by Steven Seagal, um, on board this a hijacked plane via a pipe, basically in underside of the aeroplane. Um, it's a uh, partial success but they do lose some men in the process um so now on board kurt needs to work with the likes of john leguizamo and oliver platt 
um, and secretly with a stewardess played by Halle Berry to work out a way to take down Suchet and co before they fly a bomb into Washington. By the way, um, David Suchet also in American Assassin as well. Good. Yes. He pops up um, in these bizarre films as an American. Isn't he? Um, it's reminding me a little bit of the Delta Force of first this movie because it is these people are not all Middle Eastern actors. I'm just going to say it. I mean, I saw one South American guy there. There was one clearly just American actor as well. And of course, there's David Suchet, who is not from the Middle East. He is British. And anyway, but he's very good in it. Um, so he's, he's a decent bad guy. He's very kind of urbane and quite menacing in a kind of Hans Gruber type way, but with perhaps less of a sense of humour. It's got really well-staged action and tension scenes, this film. the They call it the sleeve, the pipe that connects the two planes. And that whole scene is really well done. Um, and, yeah, the operation itself, the whole thing is plausible. And I'd say that I think that's the main... That's the word that kind of comes to mind a lot when watching this, that nothing seems outrageously stupid and no one does anything outrageously stupid even under sort of panic or stress um and the the bad guys don't leap to ridiculous conclusions when suspicions are raised it's like believable that they wouldn't just jump to conclusions and think all right there's someone on the aircraft let's go and kick off um there's uh there's a nice video conferencing sequence by the way in this with oliver platt using a crt monitor windows 3.1 like 140p image. Oh, it was just blessed that mo- that moment. Anyway, because <laughs> this was what 90. F- I want to say 94. Um, 96. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, I thought the tension in particular is really well handled. Uh, helped by a really good score by Jerry Goldsmith. The last half hour is just hilariously intense. I love how procedural it is. There's lots of problem solving in there. Um, like when they have to do an emergency landing, spoiler alert, they literally read a manual. It, it's amazing. And, um, but it, it's exciting. The reason it's exciting is because it's plausible. The stuff that happens. I mean, it's far fetched, but at the same time within the realms of reality, which I always liked about, uh, like all the best action films are kind of like that, I guess, like the, the properly good action films like Die Hard works because it's just nothing in there that happens nothing in there that happens is too preposterous you could think right okay it's basically grounded in reality so I, I like that i would say it's more of a tension and problem solving movie than an action movie as such so it's not really one just to throw on and kind of idly watch it, it's like you kind of want to get bound up in the the tension and the use of editing and stuff so i really enjoyed it a lot um much more than i thought i would because i'm pretty sure it's something i half watched about 20 years ago oh this was so, very much in the camp of films i used to watch on a regular rotation right in my okay, early okay. 20s so yeah i'm familiar with it big gutted you haven't mentioned john leguizamo yet but that's fine i did men- i did throw his name in i mentioned oh, you did throw his him name. and and Oliver Platt, <laughs> obviously. Believe it or not, Oliver Platt is not one of the hardened, like SAS operatives types. So, all oh, right. Hmm. Well, um, it was like a terrified scientist, really. 
Before we wrap things up, then, I just wondered if you'd had time to go through your Arkans Dar from about three months ago. Yes, we did do it a hundred years ago, didn't we? I have done it, but I don't know where my notes are. Gonna, oh, just okay. going to say it. Who was it again? Do we? Um, do you remember who it was? Yes, it was to get from Rene Zellweger to Mark Dacascus. So we'll, po- yes, we'll, that we'll, we'll pause yeah. that. Pause that till the all next right, one. All right. I probably um, can't do that live on air. No. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah from me they obviously film of the week time um as much as i enjoyed for all the wrong reasons lou Ferrino in the adventures of hercules one or possibly two um escape plan three was bad riddick was i surprisingly sort of enjoyable wild geese two a bit flat um the the winner for me this week was love and monsters uh because mm. i was surprised I, I didn't really think i'd enjoy it as much as i did and it just felt like a nice yeah, that's film. That's definitely intriguing me, that one. Yeah. With the monsters that's in, and we all know monsters. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I A lot of disappointments for me this month, I, this week. I, I think Come True was the biggest disappointment because I do like some of the talent behind it from a, a musical sense. Um, and it's almost good. <laughs> Which is always oh. disappointing. I mean, obviously, Saving Private Ryan is an excellent film, but I don't think anyone really needs uh, another opinion on that because it's just pretty established as a classic. But Executive Decision was the nicest surprise, so I'm going to go with Executive Decision as the film of the week because it could have been... I was expecting something a lot trashier uh, and just action-orientated than it was, uh, and it wasn't as mindless as all that. I was very impressed by that one. So yeah, it's a good one. It's it really holds up well. Executive decision. Uh, is there a scene in that film where there is a bead of sweat dripping off Kit Russell's glasses? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, there's a yeah. There's a uh, few. There's a few really really tense scenes. By uh, the way, I watched sweats. Red. I watch Red Heat. Um, I'm not going to re- talk about it next time, I guess. I've got about 10 mm. films that we haven't had time for. But yeah. I start that film where Arnie is going the, the Russian baths and it's steam Stashing. everywhere. He talks to a man who is wearing glasses in there. They would be steamed up and they are pristine. Uh, and you just. It's the fact that they. Oh, I, we, I know we'll talk about it and I'm sure we'll repeat <laughs> this, but the fact that they start a fight in that like steam bath r- boiling hot steam bath and then crash out into the snow imagine the feeling of landing on snow after being in there it was oh, you with your arms out with your arms yeah. yeah they've all got these like weird like no, it's not quite towels around them is it there's like tied on like kind of skirts Oh. Yeah, it's, the thing is, it's like, oh, you can't, you can't see my nuts, but you can. You, you're okay. It's okay to have my full ass out. <laughs> yeah, the little strings. Um, yeah, that, that that sequence, I think, that fight in the snow is what killed the or Benny Dobbins, the um, stuntman of a heart attack, I think, whilst doing that. But there's, there's, we do need to spend a bit of time talking about that. So uh, I will end Rupert with a fact of the week, and that All is. Right. Studies suggest that 85% of hamsters can't understand what rain is. A little, little factoid for everyone to sort of think about over the coming week until we do another KK, and it will be. It's like, it's like thought for the week, isn't it, really? Something to reflect upon. Something we never knew. Mm-hmm. And never knew we wanted to know. And when you know, you don't realise how much 
that piece of information can change the trajectory of your week. Mm, probably not that much, but <sighs> if at all, really. <laughs> so uh, okay, well, I love you and leave you. Uh, anything for like? I've got a few to talk about next week, but um, oh have you yeah, lined up or are you gonna? Are we uh, playing? I, mean, next no, week again? I think we're gonna be playing a bit of catch up. I mean, I haven't didn't have a chance to talk about Twister this week. I mean, when when Twister falls off your list, you know it's a strong week. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I didn't even get a chance to talk about Blade Trinity or the Johnny Warwicker trilogy starring Bill Nye, so we definitely need to catch up in the week at some point. Great. Looking I love forward you. to it.